Oh, just in case you ever read Batman Incorporated, Batman and Robin ruins it. <laughs> What's the point of reading it then? There's a big reveal behind who the, the Leviathan is, and Batman and Robin issue zero ruin it. It's not a ruin as in this is this. It's not ruined for you. It's more of a ruined as in if you know, you know, and it's clever. But if you don't know, and then you then go on to read Batman Incorporated, you're like, that's him. Then that means that is oh. So yeah. Okay. But you, I don't think you're ever going to read Batman Incorporated. It's unlikely one would have thought. Batman Incorporated is one of the most funnest down to earth of the Grant Morrison Batman saga. Okay. Because it is right. It is Call of Duty meets Brave and the Bold. I don't really feel the need to have to read anything like that, though. You just talk about it all the time. So. I don't talk about it all the time. Just most of the time. Not even that. <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> this briefing is from file A56-7W. Classified top secret subject is... Hey, kids! Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Faster. Welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. I'm Andrew Leyland. I'm Michael Leyland. You know, we, we should just do a pre-record of this bit and just use the same one every week, because we say the same thing, though. Is it? Yeah. Maybe we should come up with a, a witty and urbane intro every week. Maybe. It's too much like hard work, though, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. That's extra effort. Yes. We read the comics and write about them, that's tough as it is. <laughs> it's it's time-consuming, I'll give it that. Um, bits of business this week. This week. Dave Walker is, is godlike. Yes. And do you know why Dave Walker is godlike? Oh, he's sent you a finger. <laughs> and indeed, Ra. Yeah. Represent. DVD, the American Blu-ray of The Avengers. Dropped through my letterbox this week. My birthday present still isn't. No, your birthday present still isn't. But my Avengers DVD and Blu-ray is. Yeah. Courtesy of Mr. Dave Walker, who responded to my rant about the fact that the British version of the Avengers is a edited, b doesn't have all the special features, and c and most egregious, yes, did not have the Joss Whedon commentary, which you watched the other day. Which I watched the other day, and is very very good and entertaining. In fact, all the special features were fun. So is the American version not edited at all? No. Alright, and it's even got the extra little two-minute bit in there. Yeah, just stuff in the first with Schwarm, I've seen. So thank you very much, Dave. Cannot say enough nice things about it. Yeah, I actually think about it, I don't think I really like the Avengers much seven else does. Oh, dear! I despair. No, it's the film's... The film's perfectly fine, it's the characters. The film's excellent. It's the characters. I've rewatched it twice now. Joss Whedon's characters are not the characters who are in the other films leading up to the Avengers. They so totally are. They're really not. They totally are. They're really not. The deleted scenes with Captain America are brilliant. The, the, okay, Bruce Banner. Especially Bruce Banner has changed since the Ed Norton movie. Oh yeah, it's the bit where he's not Bruce Banner anymore. He is Bruce Banner. No, he's not. He's a douche in that film. No, he is. Yes, he is. In which film? 
in the Avengers. No, he isn't. He's a smart ass. Every character in that film is a smart ass. No, he isn't. Bruce Banner's not a smart ass in the Avengers. He barely speaks because he's shy. And everyone wants to be like Tony Stark in that movie. No, they don't. Yes, they do. In what way is Chris Evans' performance as Captain America in any way similar to Robert Downey Jr.'s performance as Tony Stark? No, they're not. I'm better than you and other No, they're not. It's all alpha male smart ass. No, it isn't. Whereas, say. Have you watched the same film I watched? Did you watch the same film I watched? Everyone's Joss Whedon wearing a different costume. Moving on, before I lose my patience. I'm not having you dissing on the Avengers. Well, Eric Banner's a better Bruce Banner than Mark Ruffalo. Get out! <laughs> Eric Banner was awful! Even Jennifer. 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 Even Jennifer Connolly couldn't stop that piece of boring ass drivel from being boring ass! He was more of a Bruce Banner than Mark Ruffalo. Do you want to move on? <laughs> you have been wronged before, <laughs> and have let your youthful enthusiasm cover over the, the wrongness. Eric Banner was not a better Bruce Banner than Matt Ruffalo. Opinions like assholes. Yeah, and then there's ones that are wrong. <laughs> That's just... I don't even know where to go with that. Yeah. Well, I'm saying Ed Norton's the better Bruce Banner of the three of them. Ed Norton was fine. Eric Banner? Our first team hail tonight. Aiden Bohan. Hello, Aiden. My God, Michael, you've ruined me. You've been bending it's him over again. <laughs> The email says, so, guys, I just recently read Batman the Black Glove. Jesus, that was incredible. And then, that Grant Morrison spotlight episode? Yeah, I was saving up for a three-piece suit and a fedora, but now I'm buying lots of Grant Morrison stuff. He's really good. He's really, really good. Great episode. (sighs) Myself from two weeks ago would be so disappointed at current me. Aiden M, confused with personal pronouns. The Black Glove or Batman and Son? I don't know. Is there a difference? Yes, Batman and Son is the four, five, six. Issues. Is that the new edition? Well, that's Batman, Black Sun, uh, Batman and Son versus Black Glove. That's the two of them combined. Right. But Batman and Son is your Batman meets Damien, Batman soft. So the Damien. new hardcover is two trade paperbacks. Right? Yeah, Batman um, fights these man bats. Uh, there's the Joker man bats pro story, and then Very there's the bad. one where there's the three ghosts of Batman. That's mm-hmm. your Batman and Son. Um, the Black Glove is when he goes, where they all go to that island and have the little detective thing with the Batman from across the world. Right. And then they're attacked by members of the Black Glove, and that's where Batman's I've read that Who are these people? I've read that With the J.H. Williams are. Yeah. That's the Black Glove, so there's a difference between the two. Right. And then it moves into R.I.P. I presume if he says the Black Glove, he means the new current hardcover. Okay. Which I still don't have. But need. Yeah, your mum can sit again if you better. Did you? Yeah. It was only a consideration. The one that's in Smith's isn't in very good condition. None of Smith's or Waterstone stuff are in good condition. So she didn't get it. Fair enough. Our next email is from Sean Engel. Hi, Sean. Hello. Host of Just One of the Guys. A Guy Gardener podcast. Okay. Because it's all about the guy love. Yeah. The love of Guy Gardener. Yeah, it's not. The, the, the love of guys. Which we're still okay with. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. 
I just don't want the people to be tuning in to just one of the guys and not getting what they want from it. Podcast idea is the subject heading. (laughs) Your mum's face is grinning. Hello, Leylands. Hello, Sean. I was just re-listening to your coverage of the Marvel adaptation of The Empire Strikes Back over at the Two True Freaks Network. That's a long time ago. It is, and I'm surprised that when people listen, so I'm doubly surprised when people re-listen. on the perfect joke, though. What? In a galaxy far, far away. Uh, right, sorry about that. I'm, just, I'm still recovering from Eric Banner. Which hosts such wonderful shows, continues Sean's email, as The Walking Dead Wednesday and The Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror, and some other shows as well. So he's only mentioned the two shows he's in there, which I thought was quite clever of him, Mm. to plug his own contribution. Yeah, it's very good. I'm I'm very impressed with that. The Vault of of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror is good. Okay. I've just listened to the Alien episode. I need to listen to the Prometheus one now. Speaking of Alien, I watched Ghostbusters today. What has Ghostbusters got to do with Alien? Sigourney Weaver's involvement. That's a good point, <laughs> yeah. Gosh, how stu- I feel so stupid. <laughs> Actually, continues show. I had listened to the show when it originally came out and was listening again and remarking on the quality of the show as well as your first season in general. It's vastly different than some podcasters' early shows that are filled with awkward mistakes, overuses of the phrase, you know, and obvious inadequacies in prep work. Oh, wait, that was last week's episode of Just One of the Guys. My bad. <laughs> I love how he gets a plug for his show in that, isn't Yeah. Excellent. He's very good at he, this, isn't he? He's crafting all these. He's crafted this very well, yes. He's self-effacing, but he's the craftsmanship that's got into this email. Give him a pass. Where he has mentioned every single podcast he's on. Mm. But he's got a little sugar-coating of complimenting us at the same time. Yeah. I am very impressed with that. It's a skill not many people have. It is. Well done, Sean. Um, thank you for your kind words on our early episodes. We do appreciate it. They're not bad, are they? Your mum listened to one the other day by accident. By accident? Inadvertently. Because they're... And then you turned it off. Yeah, because I'm not going to listen to it again. I made you laugh. <laughs> Thanks, love. How did I make you laugh? Dad was earlier complaining that it was when the redundancies were gone and you were stepping up because you really wasn't well. Um, and Dad said, I left your gap though so you could put the opening credits in. And you just went, well, I'm editing so I can edit all of you out. <laughs> See, even back in the early days, got no respect <laughs> to Rodney Dangerfield of podcasting. Uh, we've interrupted Sean's email for that little bon mot, but seeing as people like you contributing to the show, probably more than they like us. I don't know, they just find you amusing. People like me. Do they? <laughs> Who are these people? <laughs> Um, but what got me to sending this email was the mention of a comic series that you wanted to do that your wife was actually interested in. But because I was listening to you whilst at the gym on the treadmill, the actual name of the comic slipped my mind, slipped my already faltering memory, and I had to re-re-listen to the show. <laughs> Unlucky. As third time is supposed to be the show, I actually remember the title which I would love to have you cover in the future. Scott Pilgrim vs. The Work. World. Yes, World. It's going well tonight. I've been meaning to pick up the books after seeing the clever but flawed film done by Edgar Wright, and hearing you mention it on the show made me want to hear both of your opinions on the books as well as the movie. Plus, you might actually be able to get the missus on the show without having her complaining about your singing. <laughs> Anyhow, keep up the great work and realise that the old stuff is in no way as bad as you think it was. You were firing at all cylinders from the start and have only gotten better. Thank, Thank you, Sean. Cylinders. <laughs> Good day. 
Oh wait, that's Australian. Sean Engel, amateur guy gardener apologist, because I'd have to get paid if I wanted to call myself a professional. <laughs> I think you're professional. It's very dry. Mm. Um, Scott Pilgrim mm-hmm. has been on Michael's mythical list. Because oh, I actually write lists. It's far more superior than the film. Michael has wanted to cover Scott Pilgrim from about six months into us doing the show, haven't you? Yeah. And the problem we've always had it's is how, do, how would we cover it? Yeah. Would we cover the whole thing as one show? Yeah. Which would probably work, but it's an awful lot of reading it, it's, for one show. Especially if it's all six. Yeah. There's so much more in them than there is in the film. Yeah. And then we thought, well, we'd just cover a book. And then even then, there's quite a lot. Mm. I mean, at first, there's not much, but the more into it, We could do it like we did Nights in White Satin, as Scott called them. Okay. <laughs> in that we did Scott Pilgrim book one. Yeah. And then some point further down the line, we did book two. Right, okay. And do it like that. So it's not a series. Yeah. So right. every now and again, we do Scott Pilgrim, the next volume. Yeah. Because I liked the film. Did you like the film, Mom? It was alright. Excellent. Good. You didn't like the film, did you? I thought it was very decent as a film, but as a adaptation of the books, it falls flat on its... Given that he was working without pace. knowing the ending of the film... Yes. but even The then, film, sorry, the comic. The, the ending still works fine. And even when Brian Lee O'Malley was on set every day to tell him what the ending could have been. You know, they were both different endings, hmm. but there's the character in the way. I mean, there's two of the evil ex-boyfriends... Give in the comics they give so much more backstory and tension to everything and they play a really big part but then in the film they don't even have a speaking role Chris Evans is great in it though well isn't he yeah there's Lucas Lee you used to have a man thing for Chris I do I, have a, I don't have a man thing for Chris <laughs> Evans crush. at all I am growing to appreciate him uh, as an actor <laughs> yes I think having seen him now The Losers and Captain America you watch those two back to back and then you realise that it's the same actor Yeah. and you think actually this guy's got chops so yes I am growing to appreciate Chris Evans I look forward to seeing what he does next okay probably another comic related movie probably I would imagine so what were you going to say dearest I was going to say isn't he thingy as well in film this is just for me oh So he's been in the Fantastic Four, Captain America, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, and The Losers, all based on comic books. So is he the actor to have played the most separate comic book characters, having now played Johnny Storm, Steve Rogers, whatever he was in The Losers, and Lucas Lee? The the A-team with Sam and Dean Winchester's dad in it. Oh, that one was... Even Adam watched that with us and loved it. Uh, yeah, that was the other one that was totally dreadful. The Expendables, you're thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> Our next email... The disease, we're the cure. Is, ...is entitled, Great Show, Steve. And I think we should get the sender of this email to read it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But you do a much better you than I do. I mean, I do you very well. <laughs> but... <laughs> Can we not cut that out? I'm just so embarrassed, Michael. Okay. I just wanted to email in and say hi. I love your podcast as it means I get to watch whatever I want to watch on TV whilst you and Michael are recording. Keep up the good work, lads. Love the wife. Kiss, kiss. Thank you very much, dear. We appreciate your patronage. (laughs) Our next email is from Dave Walker. Hi, Dave. Hello. The mighty Dave Walker. Can't say enough nice things about Dave. 
just because he sent you the... Oh, <laughs> yes! Just look up to whoever anyone sends. Anyone wants to send me gifts? If 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 say, I am down Luke with them. sent you something next week, he's then your favourite podcast. I don't have favourites. <laughs> I like them all equally. Yeah. It's like saying who's your favourite child. You have your favourites. You just don't. No, admit no, it. don't, 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 don't. You all service different needs. <laughs> all right. Okay. That's what I'm going to say about. Moving on to Dave's email, which is headline spotlight on Garth Ennis. Greetings, programs. Is that like 2008? We're progs. I quite like that idea. Okay. How are things going this week? Uh, Going marvellous since you sent me that Avengers (laughs) Blu-ray. The week was actually quite down until that point, wasn't it, love? Yeah, and you've watched it twice since. Oh, yes! I'm going to watch it again. I've watched it twice this week, isn't it? Yeah. Booyah! Hopefully well. I've once again ended up with notes on an episode and having to try to collate them into something close to a coherent set of thoughts that can actually be read as an email. Still kind of sounds like a list, for which I apologise. Oh, don't apologise, we like lists. Not sure what of Garth Ennis I've read, apart from Dynamite Shadow series, which is pretty damn good. Yes, it's very good. You'll wait until I've got all six of mine. Um, yeah. War stories. I really like the use of the War Eagles Durr music. Got to play that in a brass band years ago. It's pretty fun. Worked really well with the war theme you were going for. Which I guess was the point. Oh, good. I spent ages trying to find the, mu- the right music for that episode. I really did. Sergeant Fury nailing Asian hookers. Is that a new Marvel male title? <laughs> you would buy that boot, wouldn't you? Well, with all that money I have. Yeah. I'd read it just for that title. If they're brave enough to call something that, it should be pretty good. And there'd be a tie into um, Two True Freaks. Yeah. Would, would um, Scott and Chris would go, hey, this new guy's listening and he wants to join our Two True Freaks network. Send the Asian hookers. Send the Asian hookers the from Asian hookers. Yeah, complimentary Asian hookers. I wish they'd stop falling, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's Adam, I swear. You think? Yeah, you had nothing to do with you. Um, Actually, it was the first Fury Max miniseries that Garth Ennis wrote, Has Sergeant Fury Nailing Asian Hookers. It wasn't actually the title. Not every single time Nick Fury was in any Garth Ennis boot. No. Well, you know. Uh, You mentioned the grassy scene at the end of Blackadder Goes Forth, which I'd thought was meant to be the battlefield they'd gone over the top onto, as it would look now, as opposed to England's green and pleasant lands, but maybe it's flexible. Um, Yeah, see, I always interpret it as it is free because of the sacrifice of those men. Mm-hmm. I, I don't suppose it matters which hill it is, really, as symbolic. That's how I always interpreted it anyway. But again, your mileage may vary. I don't suppose it matters, really, in interpretation, does it? Preacher. I've not read Preacher. Maybe it'll change my mind about Mr Dylan's art if I ever get around to reading it. It's great that I sometimes have valid points, but don't worry about apologising for liking something I don't. It's my opinion, and it could change. Maybe. I do try to find positive in most of the comics, games, books, etc., and if I can't find any, I usually try to keep quiet until I do. That's why I really rant, unless people specifically ask for it. Do we rant? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Eric Banner. So Max Kane, Max Kane, Max Payne came up at some point as well. First game was great, though yes. it was constipated the whole time. He does. And don't remember much about the second one. <laughs> Never seen the film and don't think I want to. At least it wasn't made by Yui Ball. <laughs> that would be quite funny. It's it great, was. the first one. Everything's all blocked, so his face is a block with a rendered face on it. Mm. Hitman. Next up, Hitman. So is he really the only good thing to come out of Bloodlines? I would say so. Yeah. What about Argus, or Mood Ring Hulk, sorry, Loose Cannon? Yeah, you're probably right, but Loose Cannon at least has had a new Nier 52 appearance. Not sure if any others have shown up or are due to show up. 
So this Hitman story had nothing to do with the Final Night story. Banners on unrelated titles annoy me. It annoyed me during Millennium and it annoys me here. It gives the impression it's actually part of the Final Night story when it isn't. While I'm on the topic of Final Night, Final Night, did you know Hal Jordan was once Parallax? I don't think he's ever mentioned that, actually. <laughs> I don't think we've, we've, we've covered that. Speaking of which, and this is for Sean Engel, oh, okay. in the 50p bins at the last Comic Mart, I picked up Green Lantern 50, 51, 53 and 56, and I've just read 50 and 51. Okay. Where Hal Jordan goes wacko and kills Kilowog! He kills everyone. That was mean! He kills everyone. And then Kyle Rayner takes over as Green Lantern. Yes. And I quite liked issue okay, 51. You've not read all of them? Uh, no, no, I've, like, have you? no I've, I've not read any. I've read the first 13 issues of that series, yeah. and then those two issues. That's okay. all I've read. Well, what happens is, the first issue, Hal Jordan recreates... Um, Co-sits it and relives his memories. Right. And then someone, one of the guardians, say, "Ah, you can't do that. You just broke one of the rules for being a Green Lantern. Come back to O." So he goes over to O. Oa. 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 And all the Oa. all the Green Lanterns try and stop him because Lanterns come go and they won't go home. Take the power battery so he can rebuild. <laughs> I love how you just ignore me and carry and on. And then he kills everyone <laughs> to get on his way there. And then Sinestro shows up and he kills <laughs> he kills Sinestro and then he kills all the Guardians and then he sends into Parallax. Right. I need to read that see if he's any good. Yeah. Anyway, somewhere in that Hitman story, Battlestar Galactica ends up being mentioned, and I'm pretty sure it was around this time that, that around this time that I was watching it on BBC Two, back when they actually had semi-interesting things to watch at 6pm on a weeknight. This was also around the time I was watching Sliders, which was initially awesome, then got a little crazy towards the end with the last series, only having Rembrandt crying man brown being the only remaining slider still sliding. Thanks for the show, Dave. P.S. What do you think of the Avengers extras? They were the awesome. Yes. Or I thought they were. I've not seen any. You've not seen them. The deleted scenes are great. Okay. Yeah. Finally, our email from Luke Giaconetti. This is not... I've skipped an email from Luke. He's mentioned one from Peter David that I do want to read, but I'll save that for next week. But this one is one of the best ones he's ever sent us. Is it? Yes, in my opinion. This is a great email. Okay. So I want to read this one today because I was excited to do it. Okay. War Comics is the subtitle. War! What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Say it again! Okay. Okay. First off, let me say that in my last email, I may have confused Garth Ennis with Warren Ellis at one well, point. Well, it doesn't really matter. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> I will still read that email. Okay. I mean, I have read that email, but you know what I mean? I yeah. will read it on the show. This is a common mistake for me for some reason. This even after I became much more familiar with Warren Ellis after he wrote the extremist story for Iron Man, so sorry about that. I did very much enjoy your guys' coverage of the Ennis War Stories issue. I was not familiar with his war genre work beyond a passing knowledge, so those sound right up my alley. Thanks for making me aware of them. Check them out. I love war stories, don't I? Yes. I think war stories is brilliant. Some of the best stuff he's ever done. Regarding DC War Comics versus Marvel, part of it is the sheer variety of war comics which DC published versus Marvel. DC held on to the war genre for a lot longer and always had a bigger variety of titles than Marvel. This allowed for different aspects of the genre to be explored. Haunted Tank, for instance, was much more of an adventure strip than, say, Sergeant Rock, but it did look at the inherent dangers of driving around in little more than an armed and armoured coffin. Enemy Ace was almost operatic in its drama, but certainly showcased the uselessness and futility of war. The strip also had the novel twist of making the star a German pilot, showing that even the enemy, in this case the war being World War I, was still human, as Hans von Hammer was an honourable man who was fighting for his country. Uh, Ennis did an issue of War Stories that was from the German point of view as well. Mm. He did um, the two Enemy Ace 
Yes, Andy special. did an enemy ace special. Which didn't they also have Sergeant Rockham at the end? I think so. Andy did a, an Unknown Soldier series as well, didn't he, for Vertigo? Yeah. All worth checking out. That was a contemporary Unknown Soldier. Yeah, it was. It wasn't a war story, was it? The Unknown Soldier was a very personal story, as it dealt with one man who moved between different theatres of combat. So it was a strip which dealt with the impacts of war on the individual, often civilians or others caught in the crossfire. Strips like The War That Time Forgot were straight-up sci-fi war stories and were very action-heavy, but Weird War Tales, whilst it had a horror twist, was very serious about its depictions of combat. The host of Weird War, being an anthology, of course it had a host, was none other than Death himself. The losers would oscillate between more serious and more adventurous depictions depending on who was writing the book. The same was true for Blackhawks. The one-off stories which filled up pages in the anthologies were usually very bleak, not to the very grim level of British war comics, as was mentioned, but certainly very downbeat. Sergeant Rock is the best regarded of the DC war books for a reason, as it was used to address contemporary issues in a World War II setting. One famous issue is Our Army at War 233, which was a fictionalisation of the My Lai attack massacre in Vietnam. The issue was featured in the New York Times magazine as part of a story on realistic depictions of war. See, this is what I was waiting for. Yeah. I knew Luke would email us in about the war comics and I wasn't disappointed by this so I'm totally going to check that issue of Our Army at War okay. and see what it's like. Uh, Joe Orlando was the editor for all of DC's war comics and he was a veteran and most of his crew which worked on the war books were veterans. There's a reason why the final page of most DC war books have the title Make War No More. Sergeant Fury was a very good book, true, but Marvel was much more interested in superheroes than in the genre books, so they never really competed with DC in the genre. Just a matter of who was working on what. Taking nothing away from Fury, though, I've always loved how that book showcased an integrated unit, how very Marvel of it. I think this was mentioned in a recent episode of Fantasticast as well. Yeah, I like the A-team feel of Sergeant. It's the only downside of the Captain America film for me is that we will now never get a Sergeant Fury movie. No. Because we've seen the Howling Commandos and that Sergeant Fury wasn't in the war with them. Yeah. Which irks me a bit. Okay. It does. Well, isn't not one of the things that they already have a Nick Fury? Yeah, but they could have had his great-great-grandfather be in World War Two, Okay. And look like the comics guy. Yeah. And just established that at some point down the line there'd been a, an interracial marriage in the family. Yeah. That doesn't matter, does it? And then, that, and then that's where Nick Fury came from. Mm-hmm. That would that would be a good explanation for it, I think. Yeah, could have brought David Hasselhoff back, and not the new origin behind the old, uh, the normal. But that he's a long Nick lost Fury. son that Nick Fury didn't know he had. Yeah, from presumably one of those Asian hookers. <laughs> Compared to British war comics, continues Luke's email, most American war comics are generally less cynical and less grim. There are some exceptions. Some of the smaller press books, like Frontline Combat and Blazing Combat, were right on a par with their European counterparts. And even some of the Charlton books, like Fighting Army and Fighting Navy, were pretty harsh. The difference was touched on by Andy in the episode. While in the US and the UK have been allies for a long, long time, and we share the special relationship, as we've discussed in the New Frontier episodes, the fact of the matter is that at this time the books were being published, the only attack on US soil by an enemy combatant in recent history was Pearl Harbor. Compared to the Blitz, it became clear why the output of the two countries' war comics was so different. We were hit with a sneak attack which woke the sleeping giant and roused the country out of its laissez-faire attitude regarding the rest of the world. The British people were under attack every night for what must have looked like an interminable time frame. So no surprise there. Both countries paid huge prices during the war though, but we both soldiered on and won the day. The world would look a lot different if not mostly for the efforts of the American and British troops during the war, and I think both nations recognise this, even if certain members of both don't want to acknowledge it. But that's a political soapbox I will not stand on here. Um, see, 
Yes, I totally agree with everything you just said there, basically. Nan, yeah. who lived through it, so I'm much more likely to give credence to somebody who was actually the yeah. than anyone else's opinion, is of the opinion that if the Americans hadn't come in, we would have fallen at some point. Mm-hmm. And Menan's sister, Auntie Doris, was a GI bride. She married an American soldier and went back to America with him. Yeah. So there's, there's all of that history in our family. And I've, I've discussed this before. I don't even remember if I've told this story before. But there's so many little things in the war that if they'd gone slightly differently, everything would have been completely different. Mm. Like the story just before the Battle of Britain, whereby Hitler didn't, wasn't interested in the UK. He had no interest in the UK at all. We weren't strategically important, yeah. but they were hammering us, and our aircraft was running on spit and bailing wire, and our air force bases were knackered. Yeah. And at the last possible minute, Hitler pulled his troops back to attack a more strategically prominent base and left us alone. And if he hadn't left us alone, we, yeah. we would have fallen. We were clinging on by our toenails at that point. And it gave us the chance to rebuild our Air Force bases, reman our ships, rebuild our ships, and then following that, the Battle of Britain happened. Yeah. But there is no doubt in my mind that if America hadn't entered the war when they did, we would be living in a very different world at the moment. Okay. But, you know, I'm yeah. not interested in the politics of it. I'm interested in the real people. And didn't me Nan's told you the same story she's told me, hasn't she? Yeah. About air raids and bombs and Mickey Mouse... Yeah. Gas masks and all that stuff. War comics are often trashed as saying they glorify war with one-sided jingoistic heroic characters and make war an adventure. I disagree. There are some adventurous strips, sure, but on the whole the war comics genre, especially from the Silver and Bronze Age, show generations of readers that war is not a romantic glorious crusade, it's a horror show, and we all must strive to make war no more. The vast majority of DC's war properties that are available in Showcase Presents reprints, including one volume of Our Army at War, which collects all the one-off stories. They read very well in black and white and are, of course, good value. War comics are not super expensive in the back-issue market because of a lack of demand, but they can be hard to find, due mostly to smaller print runs than their non-genre counterparts. I would also like to recommend the recent mini-series Sergeant Rock, The Lost Battalion by Bill Tucci. Tucci is an avid World War II history buff and did a ton of research into this story, including working as a battlefield artist for a World War II reenactment group. The story puts easy company into the story of the 442nd, I should say that properly, shouldn't I, 442nd Infantry, a unit made up almost entirely of Americans of Japanese descent who had volunteered to fight despite most of their families being put into internment camps. Great story with some amazing painted art by Tushi. I would love to hear Michael's tale on some of the older stuff at some point just to see how a younger generation reacts to it, even though I know he doesn't really like Silver or Bronze Age stuff very often. Thanks for talking about war stories and giving me an opportunity to talk about some other war comics. Luke, you're very welcome. I'll skip your other email, we will cover it, I promise, but that one was so good. And it was exactly what I expected to get from it when I said Luke can probably tell me more about American war comics. Because obviously I grew up reading the British ones. You've read Grandad Peter's Sergeant Rock comics. The ones he had, yeah. And loved them. Some are better than others, yeah. But that's there is one which I thought was much better than the others. I've no, I've no idea what it is. Rock and iron or something, and the bad guy was fighting at a metal hand. Right. That's all I remember. Right. Okay, fair enough. P.S. About 25 minutes into the Alex Frost episode, I'm really enjoying it so far. Thank you very much. Spotlight On was a great concept, and I hope you revisit it again in a future season. 
we've talked about that, but I want to give underrated people. Yeah. I'd like to do people like Bill Mantlo and James DiMatteis. Spotlight on underrated people. Yeah, who've done solid runs on good comics, but... Hey kids, comics, Luke, under the rocks. Yes, that's very good. Yeah. I like that, a great deal. Um, I wasn't a fan of the Alex Ross episode. You did a great job with it. Right. I was hyper. Okay. I listened back to it before I put it up because you'd done all the editing on that one so I had no memory of even yeah. doing the episode which is the way it normally goes I don't know how much caffeine I'd been drinking that day <laughs> but I was hyper as hell and that's why you don't like it yeah if I'd have been editing that one I'd have cut an awful lot of me out of it fair enough because I, I don't know what it was you did a great job yeah you, more power to you I think you, you when I say do the editing I don't want you to do it better than me okay so stop that right okay so that's it for emails this week we will take a quick break and plug somebody else's show and then we'll be right back with Spider-Man Maximum Carnage said Mongo, Dindy. That's wrong character, wrong universe, and wrong galaxy. Hold on just one sec. Ah, here we go. Flash Legacies, a podcast connecting the adventures of Wally West, the third hero to be known as The Flash. Join me, Dave Walker, in my bi-weekly journey as I look at Wally's career from when he first donned the mantle of the Flash all the way up to the return of Barry Allen. Find me at flashlegacies.limpson.com And we're back! Yeah. Yes. I did that in a slightly different inflection this week. Did you like it? It was good. Do you think it worked? Um, I'm always worried about doing and we're backs. Very... It's very dynamic. dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I do dramatic very well. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder whether we should just play it low-key. It seemed like you were a very excited kid looking forward to Christmas. I'm very excited about covering what we're about to cover. Well, are you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I am genuinely excited about this. I'm not. You were the one who wanted to do it. It was you. You bought them all and said, let's do this. Yeah, well, the thing was, it came from... When we started the show, I did have this thing that Spider-Man's my favourite character and it could very easily turn into a Spider-Man podcast. And so I deliberately... Oh, yeah, turned the other way and went into a Batman podcast. Well, that's what I was just going to say. So I deliberately lent away from doing Spider-Man. Right. And for the first year of the show, we only did two Spider-Man episodes. Yeah. Until Spider-Man month, really. But inadvertently, I noticed that I hadn't had the same problem with Batman. Yeah. And we've covered a crap ton of Batman over the course of this show, haven't we? Yeah. So, we'd done all the Nightfall stuff, and that seemed to go down well, and we enjoyed doing it. For all that we took the mick out of Night's Quest, and as bats, and swear to me! We that's enjoyed... what that feels like. Yeah. That's what that feels like. <laughs> we enjoyed those comics. Yeah. And I still think that storyline holds up. And so I was looking for a Spider-Man equivalent that we could cover. I didn't want to do the Clone Saga, because it goes on forever. And there's already a podcast. And there's a podcast devoted purely to the Clone Saga. I thought it would be a bit wrong if we just dipped our toes into that. Yeah. Likewise, though. Yeah, yeah, only for odd issues here. Likewise, I don't want to touch on 
the death and return of Superman because from Crisis to Crisis has earned the right to do that before us. Yeah. Maybe a couple of months from now, maybe when we do our Superman 75th anniversary birthday thing, there may be a couple of issues from Death and Life in there when we choose our top ten stories. Yes, will be the year after because he's a year younger than Superman. So so I thought, well, let's do Spider-Man and let's do Maximum Carnage. And that's where it came from. I wanted to do more Spider-Man because I love Spider-Man and this was... Until the Clone Saga, yeah, arguably the the biggest crossover. Well, he was it's certainly in. very nineties. Oh yeah. Well, nineteen ninety three was a very interesting year for comic books, but being the nineties and all, which may explain why we keep coming back to it so much. Yeah. Um, Superman has just died to huge sales figures. Batman had just begun Nightfall to equal amounts of high expectation and probably the same escalated sales figures. Marvel looked over at what the competition was doing and decided they wanted a piece of that particularly lucrative pie. Now, major crossovers had been nothing new in comics at the time. Marvel tended to have events over the summer months that crossed over into the numerous comics with stories such as Inferno and Secret Wars 2, and the X-Men family of titles had regularly told stories that encompassed their entire line. Over at DC, the Superman comics were essentially one long narrative, published in four separate comic series on a weekly basis. And even Batman had had phases of his publishing career, Nightfall being the most recent, where the storyline crossed over into other main Bat titles. However, Spider-Man, long considered Marvel's flagship character, even when the X-Men were ruling the roost sales-wise, had been largely spurred this. Stories that began in Amazing Spider-Man, for example, tended to run and conclude in Amazing Spider-Man. Sure, there were exceptions. Craven's Last Hunt ran through all three of the Spider comics at the time, as did Life in the Mad Dog Ward. And if you remember that story, consider yourself a total true believer. And there were summer events where The Amazing Spider-Man went twice weekly for events such as The Assassination Plot, The Return of the Sinister Six, and Round Robin Revenge of the Sidekick. But again, despite gouging the pockets of fans for extra money, they didn't require you actually buy a book you didn't normally purchase. This all changed with the Spider-Man titles of the May 1993 cover-dated issues and and once this particular genie was loosed, it's fair to say the Spider-Man books would never be the same again. This month saw the debut of a brand new Spider-Man title, bringing the total number of regular Spider-Man books to five. But granted, one that was quarterly. And to launch this new book, especially a very expensive new book, onto the glutted marketplace, it was decided to make it part one of a 14-part crossover series that would interconnect across all the Spider titles, and the trade dress would make it clear what chapter of this story it was. And thus was born Maximum Carnage. I had to buy all these again because I foolishly sold a fair bit of my collection. Yeah. Moving on before Michael can harp on that, I got quite a fair decent bit of wedge for him. How much did you have to pick them back, though? Not a lot. I picked most of these up in the, the pound bins. They weren't in the 50p bins. Was it a budget? Not budget. Profit? Yeah, I don't know if I made a profit. I can't remember. I sold Maximum Carnage ages ago, back when Carnage was, you know... The big thing. The big thing. He's yeah. got his own series now and he's still not the big well, thing. Well, aren't they doing minimum Carnage? Yeah. Yeah. They're the only people who actually remember Maximum Carnage. Yeah, people like me. Um, As with all Marvel comics, and lots of comics generally, this isn't a clean story. The events of Maximum Carnage have their roots in a number of previous issues. We've already mentioned on the show Venom and his complicated backstory that revealed he was reporter Eddie Brock, who got busted after printing an erroneous story that he didn't fact-check. Naturally, he blamed Spider-Man, because, you know, that's what you do, and became a supervillain, using the symbiotic suit Spider-Man brought back from the alien planet in Secret Wars 8 from 1984, and Venom's origin was given in Amazing Spider-Man 300 in 1988. Carnage was serial killer Cletus Cassidy, 
Cletus. <laughs> That's a great name, isn't it? Cletus the Slapjaw Simeon yeah. Yokel. <laughs> I like that. Uh, Cletus Cassidy was exposed to an offspring of Venom symbiote whilst they shared a cell together. He became Carnage and went on a killing spree in Amazing Spider-Man 361 before being stopped by Venom and Spider-Man in Amazing Spider-Man 363, both from 1992, in one of Marvel's misguided attempts to turn Venom into an anti-hero. Definitely had a really stupid origin. Who, Carnage or yeah. Venom? Well, um, no, Carnage. I thought it was very flawed. Okay, because um, that tiny little bit of symbiote that left Yes, that he left behind. Now, I'm not even going to get started into all the mass thing and how it would be spread too thin or not at all. So once it was in his body, it would just merge with his bloodstream and maybe able to cause him to grow a fingernail. Yeah. Yeah. But even then, how did the blue, black, purple symbiote turn into red? Because it's merged with his blood? I don't know. I've not read Amazing Spider 360 and 363 in a long time. I read them as part of my Venom reading a while ago. Oh, right. Okay. And even then I thought... This is dumb! Yeah. <laughs> um, wow, 90s. Yo, Venom and Carnage were characters that were inexplicably popular, despite having very flawed... Yeah. Origins and execution. There's nothing wrong with the character. I mean, as we'll see when we cover the story, I am actually quite a fan of how Carnage is handled. Yeah. Carnage is the least of these issues' problems, mm. isn't he? Carnage with, with, himself. Carnage is only. Yeah, he's he got one people. mode, and he's funny about it. Yeah. And as long as the writer gets the funny, yeah, Carnage can work. Yeah. And he's not the problem with these issues, but we'll. We'll come to that as we go along. Peter Parker's parents, another character in the story, and not Amazing Spider-Man Annual 5, were, have been believed to be dead for many years, turning up hale and hearty in Amazing Spider-Man 365 in 1992, after a few teasing appearances in earlier issues. I covered this with Michael Bailey on his excellent Views from the Longbox podcast, because we are not above whoring out each other's shows. Oh, no. Carrion first appeared in Spectacular Spider-Man 25 from 1978 in a story that was a sequel to the original Clone Saga, and he now has a backstory so convoluted I can't follow it anymore, so I'm not even going to bother trying to explain Carrion's backstory. Well, I don't know who Carrion is. Uh, he touches people and they die. He's another clone of Professor Miles Warren right. from a storyline by Bill Mantlo that followed the Clone Saga about eight years later after the Clone Saga, that kind of thing. Right, okay. You're not missing a lot. Right, okay. It was a pretty decent story, though, because Bill Mantlo's run a spectacular spider was pretty good. Yeah. But you're not missing anything if you don't know who Carrion is. I don't know who anyone is in this. Right. The Spider Doppelganger is an evil, near-mindless duplicate of Spider-Man, created by Magus and first appeared in the Infinity War issue 1 right. in 1992. He's a clone of Spider-Man. He must be evil. With 60 arms and big eyes. And, yeah. yeah. This was before the Clone Saga. Right, okay. Demogoblin first appeared in Web of Spider-Man 86. he's a demon and a goblin. Yeah, you see what they did there? It's clever. Like, creativity in the 90s was at its peak. Claws, blood, and... And silly names. Yeah. And stupid origins. Yeah. And mindless slaughter. Yeah. There you go, you've got a character. Go on. <laughs> um, what was I saying? Oh, yeah, also from 1992, whose essence was fused with the then Hobgoblin, Jason McKendale, or Massendale, when Jason asked Nastareth for more power in exchange for his soul. As you do. Web of Spider-Man was going through a particularly loopy yeah. creative period at that point. Carnage and J. Jonah Jameson have previous history, Carnage wanting to kill Jonah in Amazing Spider-Man 363. When you say history, you mean he just wants to kill him? Yeah. And that's it? I can't remember if there was a reason. Fair enough. Um, who says continuity is convoluted? Well, especially when I didn't tell you who any of these people are. Because I'm reading... 
the, this maximum carnage and this de demo goblin shows up and it doesn't explain who he is, what he's doing or how he got that way. Nope. Doppelgangers are and it's just this funny little Spider-Man midget that doesn't explain why, what or how. True. And then this guy floats out of a sewer, only wearing like... Rags. Ripped undies. Mm -hmm. Doesn't explain why, when nope. or how, so... Yeah. No, no, you're absolutely right. That's why I did all that little preamble yeah. at the beginning. The only one so far, I'm seven issues into this now. Eight issues into this now. Yeah. The only one who's got an origin story so far is Carnage. Yeah. Carnage is the only one who's explained his backstory. Mm. Um, Shriek, I think, is supposed to be a blank slate. She's not appeared before this series. No. So you're not supposed to know anything about her. Right. And the fact that in the issues I've read so far, Morbius has gone researching her yeah. implies that the heroes don't know anything about her either. Right. But we'll see how we'll see how the story progresses from that. Um, quick heads up before we start as well. We wanted to do this in two issues. We ran two out issues. of three, two issue sods, as they sound, two tree freaks. Issue sods. Issue sods. <laughs> um, but we ran out of time. I'll be honest, I don't really think this is a three-episode story, but we didn't have time to cover the, all seven issues. I've done eight, Michael's only done five, so it's going to be three shows. I'm sorry about that. only in, though, like, I've not put the no, effort in. No, 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 you have put the effort in. And I, to be fair, I only got two done today. Yeah. And I only got them done in my dinner hour, because I'd already read them. Right. So it was just a case of writing up the synopsis and then making your brief notes yeah. that you talk about. But... Without that today, I wouldn't have got seven and eight read. Mm. So, so it's going to be three shows. I apologise for that. Which means we may not get to do V for Vendetta for November 5th. Yeah. Which would be a shame. Unless you put extra, extra effort in for that. And do yeah, but I don't want to half-ass V for Vendetta. Yeah. I would like to do the comic and the film if we okay. were going to do it and do a proper job of it like we did with New Frontier. Mm. So I'd rather not do it this year Yeah. and do a half-ass job of it. I'll leave it till next year and do a proper job with it. But we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Uh, anyway, this, back to this story. <laughs> this comic that I have in my hand here. Spider-Man Unlimited issue number one went on sale on the 30th of March 1993 with a May cover date and cost a whopping 3 95 for 64 pages. That's nothing anymore. It's not, is it? No. The cover by Ron Lim and Jim Sanders III has a rather bulky Spider-Man swinging around New York whilst a looming representation of Carnage is in the background. It's a fabulous first issue and Maximum Carnage begins here! We are helpfully informed on the cover. Carnage even gets the corner box. The UPC symbol on my copy is not a barcode, but a rare variant with Iron Man stating that he's celebrating his 30th birthday. This is a rare variant just because of that. It's... it's Gonna be a rare variant when I sell this on eBay, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so now you've read about some carnage, you're gonna sell one again. I'm gonna sell it again. <laughs> That's what I thought of it. <laughs> carnage Rising was written by Tom DeFalco, penciled by Ron Lim, and inked by Jim Sanders III. Chris Eliopoulos lettered, and Nelson Yomtov coloured. Danny Fingeroff edited. The story goes thusly. At Ravenscroft Institution, Cletus Cassidy has been ruled into the offices of Dr. Pornella and her assistant, Dr. Landis, who I have given the first name Max. Apparently, they believe that serial killers can be rehabilitated, but Cassidy's symbiote, which has been hiding inside of him since he got a cut on his arm, slaughters all the guards and Dr. Max Landis. This makes any of us that sat through his terrible Death of Superman video very happy. The symbiote consumes Cassidy, and he vows to make a mockery of Dr. Pornella's work by slaughtering everyone in the institution, starting 
with her. He then starts working on the rest of the occupants, but his interest is piqued by Shriek, who's all kiss makeup and sure her, and who is just as Looney Tunes as Carnage. I want to know more about this Death of Superman video. Look it up on YouTube, Max Land, this Death of Superman video. Okay. You'll, you'll, you'll not like it. Didn't you say that was some guy who was doing um, action comics? Uh, he's supposedly writing the action comics annual, yes. That's Jolly Fish. Max Landis has done a backup strip in it, I think. Or he did in solicitations where he's since bailed out, I don't know. I don't care. That video was awful. I have to see this one. Peter and MJ are at Harry Osborne's funeral. See Spectacular Spider-Man issue 200. See, I put footnotes in and all. It was only one issue ago, though, really. It was only one issue ago as Spectacular Spider-Man continuity, yes. And we covered it in Spider-Man month. We did. So this is chronologically going forward. Yeah, we're chronologically moving forward from Spider-Man. Yeah. You think we throw this crap together, don't you? Yeah. And we do. <laughs> There's no rhyme or reason We've to any of this. we issues of Clone Saga ahead. You actually but... ended up with a spotlight episode on your birthday was dumb luck. Yeah. <laughs> but no, no, we plan it. Yeah. We plan it all. Yes. Yeah. Peter and MJ are at Harry Osborne's funeral, as I've already said, and he and MJ chit-chat about how their life has become inexplicably compli- complicated of late, with Peter's extracurricular activities as Spider-Man crossing over to his civilian life. Peter doesn't point out that this has always been the case, but instead they agree to having a leave of absence from being Spider-Man. That'll last. Across town, Shriek and Carnage catch up on their respective backstories and run into the Spider-Man doppelganger, who Shriek adopts to make some kind of warped nuclear family of nutters who get their kicks, causing the deaths of innocent people. Back at home, Peter heads out for Chinese food, but the expositional news network, copyright Michael Bailey, tells him of a massacre at Ravenscroft. Now May and Ben didn't raise no dunce, so Peter immediately thinks carnage, and despite what he's promised Murray Jane, hits the streets as Spider-Man. Despite the size of New York, he immediately runs into Shriek and the Spider-Man doppelganger, and quickly ensues a bit of fighty muck. And Shriek lets it be known that she and carnage are an item. He's a quick worker, old Carnage, I'll give him that. Spider manages to smack Shriek down, but Doppelganger kicks Spidey off a building and he completely forgets he has web shooters and falls to the floor, busting his ribs and out for the count. Over at the Daily Bugle, J. Jonah Jameson beats those Spider-Man's a murderer and he's after all the Osborns and the Stacys, but I have no proof. But I don't care, I'm going to take him down! drum again, until he's told that Carnage is loose and brave old Jonah goes to get his passport. But in his office... awaits Carnage... Page one of Spider-Man Unlimited number one. As originally drawn by Eric Larson, Cletus Cassidy bears a strong facial similarity to the Joker. The opening page is quite quippy and amusing, with Cassidy's dialogue being quite funny and underplayed. Is the Carnage not the Marvel 90s, let's kill everyone version of the Joker? Yeah, when the Joker became one note. Yeah. Which is what Carnage is, isn't it? Yeah. See, the Joker shouldn't be one note. The Joker yeah. should have layers. Yeah. And shouldn't just be a murderous killing machine. But Batman stories aren't like that anymore. If you pick up a Batman story, I guarantee it has the Joker in it. I guarantee the Joker is killing people in it. I'm looking forward to Death in the Family, though. I've read the preview of it, and the Joker is... Scurry. Yes. Excellent. That's the, that's the second time ever that the Joker has scurred me. Good. I'm looking forward to that. Um, yes. Anyway, the, the opening thing is, um, is quite funny, with Carnage going, Thank you, Officer Resnick. I sincerely hope I can someday return the courtesy you've shown me by slaughtering you quickly and with minimal agony. Mm. I like it when Carnage has funny dialogue, yeah. which he does in this issue thanks to Tom DeFalco. Ooh, sounds pretty scary. Do you know who could play Carnage? Mark Hamill. No, James <laughs> Woods. 
James Woods. James Woods would make a really good carnage, I think. Ooh, piece of mutilated limb. Oh, symbiote. Oh, symbiote. That would be quite amusing. Um, apparently, according to page three, the carnage symbiote crept into Cassidy's body through a cut and stayed there until such a time that he could break free. Being wheeled over to the cushy doctor's room instead of being in a cell block apparently meets the criteria. Well, I like on page three, carnage quite obviously stabs the guy through the chest. It goes right through. Yeah. And that's something that's quite rare in comics. Yes, yes. Although, yes. in an issue of something I read today, a great mo- a moment when there was a panel of Supergirl with no jaw punching Batwoman right through the chest and it going right through, and you can see the guts and everything drip down the hand. <sighs> and it's not a vertigo book. Nope. Um, again, there's some funny dialogue on this page. Carnage explaining to Dr. Ponella that he's a killer and proud. He's actually one of the most chilling parts of the issue, where you do actually understand that he's a complete nut job. Yeah. Any last words, sweetie? Let me help you, Mr. Cassidy. I'm your only hope. So apparently she's Obi-Wan. Yeah. I can ease your pain. I've devoted my entire life to curing people like you and ridding the world of serial killers. I'm deeply touched by your obvious sincerity, Dr. Pornella. Unfortunately, your entire life has been a sick joke. A total waste! Not only have you irresponsibly released the worst serial killer of all, but I'm going to celebrate my newfound freedom by slaying every inhabitant within your precious institution. I quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> you expect a cletus. Oh no, you can see my moustache through the simio. <laughs> Caesar Romero's carnage. That would be awesome. <laughs> Um, page six, following on from Spectacular Spider-Man 200. Harry's funeral is attended by Peter, Mary Jane, Aunt May and Peter's newly resurrected from the dead parents, Richard and Mary Jane. Not Mary Jane. Mary Parker, who will turn out to be robots. Oh, right. Flash Thompson's though, and his then current beau Felicia Hardy, a.k.a. the Black Cat. So Flash has Peter's sloppy seconds. Along with J. Jonah Jameson, J. Robbie Robertson, Harry's widow, Liz Allen Osborne, and Liz's half-brother, Mark Raxton, a.k.a. The Molten Man. Peter and MJ's concern that the Spider-Man part of his life and the Peter Parker part of his life are now interconnected is actually very valid, given that at this point Harry Osborne will have known who he was, Felicia Hardy knows who he is, Venom knows who he is. Yeah. So... Quite a valid concern at this point in his life. A faceless extra comments that Harry was always such a wild man, quick with a laugh, so full of life. When? When was Harry Osborne like that? Harry was a snob when we first met him, and a pretty obnoxious snob at that. He mellowed out a bit when Peter was rooming with him, but he was never a life and soul of the party. He was always more of a hanger-on to other more popular kids like Flash and Gwen. After spiralling into drug abuse and semi-recovery, he became quite mopey and generally unpleasant, until after his father died, where he became the second Green Goblin. After this, he became very introverted, married Liz and buggered off for a number of years until he returned and was treated quite well by Roger Stern and Tom DeFalco, before being turned into a lunatic again and then killed by J.M. DeMatteis. Do you remember Harry being life and soul of the party? Those faceless extras. <laughs> Who were the faceless extras? I don't know. The only people from the company that could actually make the party, were yeah. they? Yeah. All right. So, what, what's going on with Peter's parents? You said they were robots, but didn't you work for S.H.I.E.L.D. at one point? Peter's parents were originally S.H.I.E.L.D. agents who were working deep undercover for the Red Skull and were originally believed to be traitors until Peter proved their innocence. Right. Why Nick Fury 
couldn't come forward and say after they were believed to be dead actually Richard and Murray were working for us and therefore aren't traitors I never quite got but it was such a good issue we'll let it slide okay Peter's parents Richard and Murray Parker show up out of the blue in the anniversary issue that I mentioned okay and stick around for about a year to two years before being revealed to be robots and if memory serves working for the Red Skull no not the Red Skull Oh, it may be something to do with the Red Skull because there is an issue with the Red Skull on the cover. I remember them being something to do with. Um, isn't it Harry Harry Osborn and He's the Chameleon or something to do with it? Oh God, I don't remember. I know that kicks off the Clone Saga yeah. and Peter's spiral into darkness. Why would if it was a Spider-Man bad guy? What's the? Why are they going to resurrect Peter Parker's parents? They don't know who Peter Parker is. I don't remember. Yeah. I could do with reading them again because I don't remember them being terrible. Yeah. But it was the whole darkening of Peter Parker storyline, which I didn't really approve of at the time. But um, little Norman Osborn is still creepy. Yeah. Isn't he? He's a creepy From little kid. I'm, I'm kind of leaning towards him purposely being creepy. Yes, he is deliberately creepy. Yeah. And in the Spider Girl series, he did become the Green Goblin, but then mellowed out a bit in Let's Life and became friends with May Parker. May Parker Jr. Yeah. His daughter, not old May Parker. Yeah. Who died as an actress or was shot or something. She's dead. And then came back. Yeah. Um, Page 11, we get Shriek's first appearance as Carnage is hacking up the people in the uh, Institute. I assume we'll get her backstory as we go along because I'm eight issues in and it's not been mentioned yet. Yeah. Well, you know, I I only know who Shriek is because of the Spider Man ride. Oh, yeah, she's in the Spider Man ride, isn't she? Yeah. That's how 90s that ride is. Yeah. Shrieks, in it? <laughs> I'd forgotten that. Yeah. yeah. Page 12. Peter's belly aching to MJ about smoking is understandable, but MJ's comeback's priceless. She totally owns it. Yeah. When he's uh, all, I know it's the best timing, but you're smoking. Think about what it's doing to your health. Don't confuse the issues, Peter. Harry might still be alive if he'd taken up smoking instead of being the Green Goblin. Which <laughs> you, po pond. Yeah. It's a valid point. What about that baby that's not going to be born? Well, she's not pregnant yet. Is she not? No. Okay. We're not there yet. Right. Depending upon how much time well, passes. That's Clone Saga. That's Clone Saga, yeah. Um, page 15. We don't get any backstory. She was a mass murderer who knew a guy who knew a guy that blew her mind. How are we talking blow her mind? Some... It says quite literally blew my mind. Are we talking hardcore drugs or a bullet to the head? I don't know how to take quite literally blew my mind, though. Yeah. I mean, she says the doctors tried to glue the pieces back together, but there were a few missing pieces. So there must have been some... Gunshot. Or drugs involved. Yeah. Because she doesn't look like she's got a hole in her head. But it's possible. People have Behind all her. Yeah, yeah, there is that. So, I don't know. As motivations go, it's not quite as woolly as I lost my job because I didn't check my facts properly and then spiralled into depression instead of capitalising on my notoriety, so I blame Spider-Man. But it's still pretty weak. Mm. Do any bad guys have strong backstories anymore? Or in the 90s especially. No, in the 90s it was... I don't think they needed them. Um, page 17, what the hell's a spider doppelganger? You it can't has, help me with that. It has <laughs> claws and arms and a face. Because uh, I don't think I've ever read Infinity War. No. So in I, fact, I, his body looks like it is the costume. Yeah. Because of his mouth, it doesn't look like he's wearing a costume, it's just his skin. I have no idea what he is. He's funny. <laughs> I'll give him that. Um, page 20... Peter Parker is a terrible husband. Oh, yeah. Isn't he? He leaves the Chinese food behind, for one. Well, yeah. Which wouldn't impress my wife. 
takes off as Spider-Man, gets into a fight, and then realises he's brought his promise to MJ. Oh, she's an afterthought. What a numpty. Mary Jean afterthought, Parker. Yeah, it's not like he thinks, I promised Mary Jane I wouldn't do this, but carnage, I really need to stop him, is it? Yeah, he the, does the, all the of this. regular Peter Parker guilty conscious. Yeah, but he does all of this and then goes, oh, I didn't even think about my wife. Oh, shoot, I'm oh, worried now. Oh, silly me. <laughs> the shot of Spider-Man at the bottom of page 20 is awesome, though. Ron Lim does a really good job with that. He jumps off a building, does a somersault. At the apex of his somersault, he shoots out his webbing and then swings away. Yeah. I love cool Spider-Man stuff like that. Page 21 through 30 is actually a pretty damn good extended fight scene. Shriek is useless. But the doppelganger gives as good as he gets and the acrobatics between the fur are gloriously depicted. Spider gets in a sexist comment about how women don't appreciate slapstick and then rather foolishly forgets his ability to shoot webs. But other than that, this is actually really fun, Mm. wasn't it? First chapters ago, this was actually quite good. There's a wonderfully unintentional hilarious line when Shriek says, He's trying to wrap you in his sticky goo! Pull your arm back to toss him! Oh, come on, that made me laugh. Yeah. Well, she did say she quite literally got her mind blown. Yes, yes, I suppose so. Uh, This was an excellent first issue. The violence is gloriously over the top, but not really depicted gratuitously. The art is great throughout, with Ron Lim using a lot of ditko-isms, such as repeated Spider-Mans in one panel to signify speed. The plot is simplicity itself, but DeFalco is far too much of a pro to stop him from having fun, and his dialogue is snappy and cute. The action's well done, and this first chapter sets up the situation of the characters and moves along really quickly. I was pleasantly surprised by this. There's a great two-page ad for ATM's Hot Comics. Oh, these are her hoot. Um, by and large, it's stuff we've covered before in Nightfall, because mm. Nightfall was just kicking off at this point. Yeah, it looks point. like it's all Liffield. Yeah, there's an awful lot of Liffield here. I didn't remember Ren and Stimpy being this popular, but apparently they were. There was Nicktoons trading cards, Ren and Stimpy trade paperbacks, there's a Phantom Force, penciled and plotted by Jack Kirby with inks by Liffield. Why does that sound like... I've never heard of it. Yeah. Um, Shaman's Tears, The Infinity Crusade, Mystery Incorporated, which was god-awful. Alan Moore's pretentious piss-take of Marvel. Tons of image stuff, apparently on special offer already. Yeah. So not as hot as you were led to believe. Oh, so hot, no one could touch them. So hot, nobody could buy them. The X-Men are celebrating 30 years with stunning hologram covers. I think we've mentioned all them before, X-Factor 92 and X-Men Unlimited 1 and such stuff. I don't think there's anything in there that we haven't covered in the Nightfall books. Uh, The Bullpen Bulletins page covers the Heavy Hitters line, only one of which I've read, Saxon Violins by Peter David and George Perez. Um, uh, There are two other stories in this issue of Unlimited. Uh, Playback by Mike W. Barr and Jerry Bingham, who did the excellent Batman graphic novel Son of the Demon, first appearance of Damien. Fact fans, which is quite a fun tale about Uncle Ben back when Uncle Ben tales weren't every other issue, and a cardiac backup, which is action packed but nothing special, much like Cardiac himself. Um, he's a stereotypical 90s vigilante. Ah, okay. That's pretty much all you need to know. I didn't read the two backups. Um, you're not missing anything in the, the Carnage the carnage one? Yeah. The um, Cardiac one. Uh, I like, thought it would oh sorry go on isn't cardiac something you go through when cardiac when you have arrest. a cardiac arrest it's when you have heart failure so so cardiac this vigilance going around and getting people arrested oh very good <laughs> a subtlety I think the creators hadn't thought of no <laughs> um, I thought it may be 
fun to keep a Carnage kill count yeah, right, okay. as we go through. In the next issue, it states that Carnage killed 87 people during the course of Spider-Man Unlimited number one. So they when, killed did, when did all of this happen? At Ravenscroft Institute. Oh, right. He killed 87 people in the Institute, apparently. I was going to say, Manhattan's getting pretty quiet now. Mm. Um, so the, there's a kill count of 87 thus far. Ah, right. It will become larger. The fun continued in Maximum Carnage Part 2. Dark Light by Terry Kavanaugh, writer. Alex Saviuk, penciler. Don Hudson, inker. Steve Dutro, letters. Bob Sharon, colours. Rob Tokar, editor. Danny Fingeroff, group editor. And Tom DeFalco, editor-in-chief. And if you thought those credits were longer than the ones at the end of The Avengers, you'd be right. It came out on the 6th of April 1993 with a June cover date and a cover by Alex Saviuk that doesn't happen in the issue. Carnage attacks Jonah and Spider-Man with his symbiote tentacles reaching around them. Spidey's mask is ripped so we can see his hair poking through and Joan has dislocated his finger he's not really it's just very badly drawn yeah. isn't it it's like how oh, has that finger reached that position it's trying to get your hand in it's not it's just not possible 90s hands 90s hands <laughs> with very thin fingers back when hands and feet were tiny back when your fingers could be completely dislocated from your hand yeah, back when you could draw absolutely crap pics and still be a highly acclaimed artist. Because Alex Saviuk's a pretty decent artist. Yeah. But I'm not I'm not getting what's going on with that little finger, to be honest with you. Um, it's fine, but like Mighty Michael says, very 90s in its melodrama. The UPC box informs us the Avengers are celebrating their 30th birthday. Everyone's celebrating their 30th birthday. A lot of birthday cards this year. That's because... That's the Marvel movement happened pretty much overnight, really. Yeah, in the early 60s, so they all came about at the same time. Um, Spidey's ribs are broken, following on from his encounter with Shriek and Doppelganger in the last story, when a bunch of street toughs straight out of the Warriors decide to kill him while he's eating <laughs> pickings. By pure dumb luck, Spidey's managed to get himself injured near the church hideout of Cloak and Dagger, and so after kicking some mugger butt, they take him into the church and reset his ribs into the bargain. Bonus! Yeah. For no reason that I can determine, Carnage left Jonah alive, merely ripping his shirt to expose Jonah's manly pecs. He trashes the Daily Bugle sign so it says bug, and leaves while Shriek and Doppelganger attack. The Daily Bug. The Daily Bug. There's a huge fight and Carnage shows up and wounds Spider, who's still injured. Shriek lashes out with her sonic blasts, but Dagger takes the brunt of it for some reason. Cloak and Spider-Man lie down and pretend to be dead. Even more inexplicable, Carnage falls for this and berates Shriek for killing Spider-Man. They leave and are followed by a shadowy figure who caves, who, who craves dark power, and the only way to get it is to kill other demonic entities like the doppelganger. Spidey and Cloak wake up, and Cloak is all boohoo because Dagger is missing, presumed dead. And in San Francisco, Venom sees that Carnage is loose in New York and vows to return. Is this when you stop taking it seriously? Um, I didn't stop taking it seriously. There were elements of this story I couldn't take seriously. Yeah. You sound like me writing a media essay. <laughs> Cloak and Dagger, who I didn't mention at the top of the show, because they weren't in Unlimited when I wrote the introduction, um, were two runaway teenagers who were given drugs that gave them superpowers, thereby, unintentionally I'm sure, indicating that drugs are okay, okay? Which I'm pretty sure wasn't Marvel's intent. No. Um, they first appeared in Spectacular Spider-Man 64 in the early 1980s, and despite those early appearances commanding a decent price on the back-issue market for a short time, they've never managed to carry their own series for an extended period. 
Um, the two page splash on pages two to three of Dagger shooting her daggers. Her light daggers. Not actual daggers. Not actual daggers. They're kind of light daggers that shoot into you and freeze you. But then you realise, oh shoot, it's light. Essentially, no, essentially they give you the coming down withdrawals of drug abuse. Because Cloak and Dagger were created by drugs. Yeah. Cloak, supposedly, is the metaphor for the, the deep, dark pit that you're falling into. Right. And the cold and the shivering that so you get. So is this train spotting and two characters? Essentially. And Dagger's lights give you the withdrawal feeling. Right. So essentially, it's train spotting with superheroes. So this should just be called Cold Turkey and... Cold and Turkey. Cold, yeah. <laughs> or tre- Red, tre- Red Boy and uh, whatever Hugh McGregor's character was called. Yeah. Um, Sick Boy. No, that was... That was Johnny Lee Miller, wasn't it? Yeah. It'll come back to us when we're not Renton. thinking about it. Renton. That was it. Yeah, the two-page splash page is very good. The fight scene with Cloak and Dagger and rescuing Spider-Man's okay, although Dagger's face looks a bit odd every now and again, but it's Al Bashema in mm. that. Uh, for some reason, on page six, MJ's a blonde. Well, is this not just Peter remembering, trying to remember what his wife looks like? Because <laughs> he can't remember. Yeah. No, it's a miscolor, I think. It's a colouring error. <laughs> hey, hey, MJ, when's our anniversary again? Peter, we got married last week. Yeah, so when's our anniversary again? <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember your They, they got married? Didn't, wasn't I supposed to do something for you? Um, isn't it, didn't I promise something? Did I marry Gwen? <laughs> By mistake, we should come over and call her Gwen. That'd yeah. go down well, wouldn't it? <laughs> mm, perhaps not. Hey, Gwen, you're not wearing your headband. Oh. oh. <laughs> yeah, she wore it when Norman Osborn did her. Oh. You can't unsee that once you've seen it. I did until... Sorry about that. Um, page 10. There's a lovely little mini cliffhanger here whereby Shriek arrives at the church and destroys the roof, bringing it down on Cloak and Dagger and Spider-Man's head. However, we discover that in the middle of a sentence, Spider-Man's Spider-Sense tingled long enough to tell Cloak and Dagger what was happening, and then they all got in Cloak's cloak and phased away in the amount of time it took the roof to fall in, which, according to this, was instantly. Yeah. I didn't buy that at all. Did you? Can he move fast as light? Yes, he can. He's... That's not the words. No. Streak of light. Sonic speed. Just in time. There you go, streak of light. Spider-Man. Spider-Man. And then, at this point, I stopped making notes. Well. Because, oh dear me, this one, not very good at all. Uh, Terry Kavanagh's not as adept a writer as Tom DeFalco, so the shortfallings that were prevalent in the last issue, i.e. that the plot wasn't big enough to go on the back of the Queen's head, were glossed over due to DeFalco's adroit hand. And the plot problems are exacerbated here, whereas DeFalco turned in a solid issue that was just limited in terms of plot. Kavanaugh's dialogue is overwrought and melodramatic, with Cloak being particularly hammy and over the top, with lines like, there is more than enough room for all of you in the depths of my Ebon Void, and you yourself will writhe helplessly within the closed confines of my cloak. (sighs) You know he wrote poetry in his spare time. (laughs) I didn't realise he wrote such bloody awful poetry. He writes poems about the sun and grassy fields. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know that this is 90s superhero comic books and melodrama was the order of the day. And I know that poking fun at melodramatic superhero dialogue is, you know, fish in a barrel, isn't it? 
Yeah. Really. But even by 90s melodramatic standards, this is this is cack, isn't it? Yeah. To be honest with you. Uh, added to the fact that for a serial killer, Carnage is pretty crap <laughs> when it actually comes to killing central characters. And his leaving Jonah alive makes no sense yeah. narratively, does it? It's He's a big man when they're all crazy and yeah, defenseless. It's like he, he leaves Jonah alive to publish something in the paper for him. Um, he couldn't have killed him and then Robbie would have yeah, had to this is, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. Surely that would have got the attention that he wanted. Yeah. Jonah, Jonah's head on his seat <laughs> with no body under it. <laughs> but no, I'll, I'll leave Jonah alive because he's a character we can't kill. If, it was dumb, wasn't you know, it? It's probably in Jonah's will that if that picture <laughs> were published, it would have uh, have the headline under Spider-Man it. Spider-Man did this! Yeah. <laughs> I have no proof! Because I'm dead. But he did. But he did. Um, because, like, as well, the murders that he's already committed at Ravenscroft, mm-hmm. that surely has made the purpose. Yeah. And, I don't know, like we've said, the death of a major media figure in New York? That would have got tongues wagging? Not, like not a missed one, but... No, no, no. What a stupid, stupid plot development. Um, the art's okay, isn't it? Alex Savio does a good job of making the endless fight scenes flow quite well. But the problem with this one is the fights are exactly the same both times. Yeah. The summer blockbuster nature of the story is fine, but it already feels like there are too many characters in this story, which will only get worse as it goes along. Kill count, one. So what are we on now, 88? 88. One person dies in this issue. Uh, the bullpen bulletins page talks about the Spider-Man comic strip in the newspapers, and then the stuff about April Fool's Day, which I don't care about because I think April Fool's Day is dumber than dirt. Um, coming up, coming up, Maximum Carnage continued in Amazing Spider-Man 378, which ships on the 13th of April 1993, with a June 93 cover date. The cover is by Mark Bagley and Randy Emberlin, and is actually one of the best covers of the series, I think. Um, it's very dynamic, it's yellow. But, you know, uh, the central figures are eye-catching and colourful, with Venom and Carnage duking it out in a symbolic Spider-Man head in the right-hand corner. Which never happens. Which never happens, but it's a good cover. Yeah. To be fair... It's the bags, man. Yeah, because it's Bagley. Yeah, I've got that note as well, that exact same note. This one's elevated by the fact that it's Mark Bagley. Yeah. Uh, It doesn't need Spider-Man in the corner, though, does it? Because he's already in the corner box. Is he only there just to show people it actually is a Spider-Man comic? Well, he's in the the corner box. He's always in the corner box. Yeah, well, he wasn't in Unlimited number one, it was Carnage. Yeah. But I see your point. Normally he's in the corner box. Um, That works as a cover with just Venom and Carnage fighting. You didn't need Spider-Man in the corner. There's no detail on him, really. He no. He's just kind of there, isn't he? He turns it? into the yellow. He's like, oh, no, don't kill him. Killing's nasty. We can't kill the evil serial killer. Yeah, we can. <laughs> we totally can. If, if I kill him, I'm no better than him. Actually, yes, you are, because you've just stopped him murdering 87 more people. But whatever. We'll move on from that. Um, you have a wife to remember. Yeah, yeah. Carnage is a very limited character, but he sure looks like fun to draw. Yeah. In every single one of these issues, the artists look like they're having a ball drawing. He's got Asbat's claws. <laughs> yes, but at least they look like they work on Carnage. Because on Carnage, like, it would work, yeah. How does he put the keys in the Batmobile? I can't get the key in the goddamn Batmobile. Can't turn the... the Alfred! Oh, yeah, that's right, I fired him. Um, the UPC box this time celebrates 30 years of the X-Men. Yeah. A lot of birthday cakes. A lot of birthday cakes. 
demons. But just for every member of the X. Just for every member of the X Men. Demons on Broadway. Does does that mean Wolverine gets two cakes if he's in the Avengers and in the X Men? He gets two paychecks. Oh, that's fair enough. And then he's got his own school now. Wow, he's a very busy man. He is. When does he sleep? Uh, he, he doesn't. Fair enough. Demons on Broadway was written by David Michelini, penciled by Mark Bagley, and inked. Excuse me, by Randy Emberlin, lettered by Rick Parker, coloured by Bob Sharon, edited by Danny Fingeroff, the Tom DeFalco, the Tom DeFalco. He's the definitive article. There is no other. There is no, except no substitute. Was editor in chief. Eddie Brock, aka Venom, arrives in New York, vowing to destroy Carnage as he was responsible for his creation. Cloak, meanwhile, mourns Dagger and pulls a fast fade, so Spider-Man heads home, expositing all the while for new readers. Shriek, Doppelgangbanger, and Carnage meet up, and Carnage makes it clear to Shriek he's a misogynistic woman beater as well as a murderer. There's only so much of this he can blame on being a ginger. He and Shriek make up and go out. They have a few hours to kill. Is that why he's got a red symbiote? Yeah, possibly. At home, MJ quite understandably reads Peter the riot act for going out to Spider-Man when he promised he'd take a break, and he further annoys her by going back out in his union suit, despite his busted ribs. Whilst out, the shadowy figure from last issue, the Demo Goblin, makes his presence felt and plunges Spidey into despair with a torment pumpkin bomb. Pumpkin bomb! Pumpkin bomb! It's a torment Can't get me with a pumpkin bomb! Is that where it's flying around? You just can't catch it and it's always there in your way. It's a very good question <laughs> and what I do ask in the notes because what he says it does and what it appears to do That's seem to be same. two completely different things. Should it be called the Claremont Burn Bomb? <laughs> very good. <laughs> um, Spidey fights back when the Demo Goblin threatens a priest and he disappears. The Demo Goblin, not... Not Spider-Man. Didn't make that terribly clear, though. Thanks to a convenient expositional news network, again, copyright Michael Bailey, broadcast Venom finds Carnage in Central Park, painting the part red. But the combined might of Carnage, Shriek, and the doppelgangbanger are too much for him, and he turns up on Peter and MJ's doorstep, badly beaten. Good cliffhanger. It's pretty much the best I can say for this issue. How do you know what Peter and MJ live? He knows who Peter Parker is. Oh, he right, knows yeah. Peter Parker's Spider-Man. Yeah. And in Amazing you know, Spider-Man you know, 300... He just showed up at their apartment, remember? Oh, yeah. I mean, they live somewhere different now. But he knows because we can't have too much of a story explaining where Venom knows where they live. No, and they, they have to go to great lengths to keep justifying Spider-Man and Venom finding Carnage yeah. after they keep letting him go! They're not very good. No, they're really not. Page four. I think it's worth pointing out for the healthy males in the audience that Mark Bagley draws Dagger with nipples. So he may as well be just drawing a completely nude. Yeah. Because that costume leaves absolutely nothing to the imagination. No. Does it? Well, on page four, Spidey says that these ribs are cracked. Yes. Even though, in the previous issue, Cloak said they had to reset them. Yes. This uh, Presumably this still hurt. Yeah. Even if he's reset his cracked ribs. But he even says, specifically, that they're still cracked. Oh yeah, they will milk that for the next couple of issues. Yeah. The cracked ribs. He does draw a good cloak, though. As in the character, not a yeah, good a cloak. Yeah, you know what I meant, don't you? Uh, page 9, Carnage is a misogynist, and a cold-blooded killer, and just a contemptible human being. Execute him, now. He's everything wrong. Yeah, no, really, he's, he's lost the right to live. Just <laughs> okay. g- gas him. 
Um, is that it? Yeah, well... <laughs> This is one is that, of, is that the verdict, George? This is one of the problems I have with characters with a code against killing. I understand why Spider-Man doesn't kill, because he's a hero. But when you have a character who's but when you have a character like Carnage, yes. There is a point later on in the story that we'll get to that I really didn't sit well with me, yeah. where Venom has Carnage on the ropes, and he's about to go in for the kill, and Spider-Man stops him. Letting Venom kill Carnage would have been perfectly okay, because Venom's already a killer. That's not on his conscience. But it's Peter Parker, you'll spend a story out going, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have well, let him. Well, can you now not argue that everyone Carnage kills from that point <laughs> is, is, is Peter Parker's fault, fault yeah. or certainly a portion of his responsibility? Yeah. See? So, you know. Um, page 20. Why is Demogoblin here? The last time we saw him, he was pursuing Doppelganger. So, what happened? I don't even know who Demogoblin and Doppelganger are. Do- Doppelganger is the Spider-Man yeah, I, I know, thing. Demogoblin is the one that is made of a demon. Yeah. But why Why does he need to feast on Doppelganger? That's never been mentioned again. That has never been mentioned in subsequent issues. And then he shows up wanting to know more about this plan. Yeah. The what is your plan? To kill lots of people that I don't agree with. And I will keep mentioning that I don't agree with, but I will join in with you. What? <laughs> this makes no sense. Um, page 24 through 25. Demo Goblin says the pumpkin bomb he throws gives Spidey a taste of eternal torment. But it actually just seems to make him apathetic. Yeah. Doesn't it? He, he just kind of starts going, oh, there's just no point anymore. Oh, I'm going to turn vegetarian and go and listen to Morrissey. Why is that again, Mary? Why, why do I do anything? What's the use? Why even try? Uh, it's not, that, that doesn't seem to be what the description of the pumpkin bomb is, does no. it? Pumpkin bomb! It should just be called an advertisement for My Chemical Romance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, him. Betty yeah. Billy Barlow. Um, page 31. I have to say, I do like that Venom gets his, his head handed to him. Yeah. Because it makes him slightly less cocky. Because in every other Venom story, he's always this big, yeah. unbeatable monster. And I like that we don't see what happens to him. Yeah. Which makes it slightly more horrific when he turns up all beaten and battered. I do wonder why we get the purely gratuitous shot of MJ in her bra and panties in the last panel. Because it's Mark Bagley and Murray Jane. Doesn't matter how old Mary Jane is, if it's Matt Bagley, it's always gratuitous. Mm, I mean, I suppose you could argue it's no more gratuitous than Peter just wearing his leggings yeah. with no top on. But Ultimate Spider-Man was great, purely because, you know, Matt Bagley, Mary Jane. Oh, okay. Well, now, Wasn't she too young in, in that boot, though? They were both, like, 17 and 18. Oh, well, that's alright for you. Yeah. A bit icky for me. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I do like Peter Parker's grizzly slippers. Yeah. I wonder if he killed the grizzly for them. <laughs> the old grizzly, the old Spider-Man bad guy killed him. Hacked <laughs> off his feet. That's perfectly and acceptable. And spent another ten issues going, maybe I shouldn't have. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> um, the art in this issue is great from start to finish. There are some issues with Venom like his calves being as big as his thighs. But Bagley proves why he was the quintessential Spider-Man artist in the 90s, better than McFarlane and Larson, because he's got a better grasp of human anatomy, even with mistakes like that, Yeah, like I just mentioned. Um, he draws MJ in skimpy stuff a little too much. He draws everyone in skimpy yeah, stuff. Yeah, but I suppose if I was an artist, I'd probably enjoy women. 
Would you really? <laughs> I would, yeah. I'd probably enjoy drawing women <laughs> in their underwear more than drawing muscular men. Yes. So, you well, know. All superheroes are, really. It's just... Muscular men. Naked guys with lines on them. Yeah, so I, I suppose drawing the, the occasional woman makes it perfectly acceptable. He even makes Shriek attractive, yeah. doesn't he? Which is a testament to Bagley's uh, skill. Um, I wonder if he can make uh, Asbats look realistic. I think the only time he's drawn Batman other than in Trinity was in the Spider-Man Batman crossovers, which we'll have to cover. Yeah. We'll have to cover that, because I remember them being good. He did, a, he did a run on Batman. He didn't do a run on Batman, he did Trinity, didn't he? No, he did a run on Batman. Did he? Judd Winnick. Oh, I'll have to check that One out. One of the Bat books, anyway. Right, okay, I'll check that out. It was the Dick Grayson time. Right, well, I'll have a look at that. Um, the story's more of the same, isn't it? Yeah. With more characters being introduced. But again, a decent writer actually makes this palatable. Michelini's got enough experience that, like DeFalco, he makes it work by sheer force of will. The thing I took away from this issue is that Murray Jane has every right to be pissed off at Peter. He accomplished absolutely nothing by breaking his word to her. The people at Ravenscroft were dead anyway, so there's nothing he could do about that. Carnage Shriek and Doppelgangbanger all get away. So he made no difference there. And his interference actually may have got Dagger killed. Yeah. And when he gets home with a busted ribcage, what, he's forgotten Daredevil or the Fantastic Four's number? Yeah. Now, I know responsibility is a big part of the character of Spider-Man, but he's got a responsibility to his wife. Yeah. It's Peter Parker's just a terrible husband in these issues. But it's so like, far. it's... If you do something and you enjoy doing it and you have a cause for doing it and it's very important that you carry on doing this and then you got married and your wife said, no, I'm not letting you do that. It's not... It's like... If, if a police, it's like podcasting. If a police officer got married and then his wife made him quit. No, because that's a job. That's a different thing. Being well, Spider-Man's not a job. It is to him. If his ultimate raison d'etre, which I butchered and I don't care, <laughs> is responsibility... Yeah. Surely his first responsibility now is to his wife and not to going out every night and possibly coming home a corpse. He wouldn't come home then. You know what I mean. <laughs> He'd come home eventually, wouldn't he? Um, kill count. Yeah. Carnage kill count, nine on-panel deaths. But the news says that there was a massacre in Central Park, so there could be more. So what's that now? Oh, no, wait. It was 88 plus 9. Yeah. So 97. I, I'm, I'm crap at math. Yes. Um, Maximum Carnage Part 4 dropped on the 20th of April 1993 and appeared in the pages of The Adjectiveless Spider-Man, which rather amusingly Mike Bailey pointed out by calling it The Adjectiveless Spider-Man. You've put an adjective in front of it. Yeah. <laughs> which made me laugh so hard. <laughs> Um, How yeah. many people are on that cover? Yeah, yeah, you know. Um, the cover's by Tom Lyle. And it's a movie poster, isn't it? Yeah. Spider-Man, the Black Cat, and Venom. A ridiculously out of proportion movie poster. You think? Yeah. Why do you think that? I'm, I'm looking at... Shriek. Shriek in Can particular. Shriek fly? No, she's just on a roof. Doesn't look like she stood on that roof, does it? Exactly. It's very out of proportion, especially um, Black Cat as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's you know... It's big Doppelganger, Demogoblin, Shriek, and Carnage are facing down. It's big people in a small set. Yeah. It's Land of the Giants. Like, it's Godzilla versus another... Comic Godzilla crossover. versus Depot Goblin. Yeah. Um, it's fine, for what it is. I thought an action shot would have been more appropriate. But, you know. According to the UPS symbol, it's Dragon Month. Okay. I, I don't know what, what relevance that has, but 
you know. Uh, the story is entitled Team Venom. It was written by David Michelini with art by Tom Lyle and Scott Hanna. Some blokes called Tinsley and Moran did the colours, but everything else is by the same people. And as we've established before, I'm, like, I'm boring. Team I'm Jacob and Team Edward. Team Venom. Yeah. Team Venom! Team Carnage. Mm, Jacob Brains. <laughs> oh, wait. I'm on Team Doppelgangbanger. This is a diet meal. <laughs> Uh, Shriek leads Carnage and Doppelgangbanger to an abandoned warehouse where she, that she knows about where rock bands used to store their equipment because she's an ex-groupie. Mm. We all know what that means, kids. She's been well banged. That, Carnage that is plot- that was blown. <laughs> yes, quite literally. Carnage is plotting his next attack when the Demo Goblin arrives. They all have a brouhaha due to a misunderstanding but decide to team up to cause chaos. Peter and MJ, meantime, argue over what to do with Venom and MJ storms out. Peter helps Venom to the couch where, before passing out, Venom says they must stop Carnage. MJ, with nowhere else to turn, goes and visits Aunt May. Because you would, wouldn't you? Whilst Peter changes to Spider-Man and goes and drops into the bedroom of ex-girlfriend Felicia Hardy, a.k.a. the Black Cat. Both of them head back to Peter and MJ's Soho loft and grab Venom and they two team up to go after the Carnage Collective. Cloak finds them first rather dubiously, and the fight leads Spidey, Black Cat and Venom to the Carnage Cave. Fighting McFightenstein ensues with the warehouse blowing up real good, the Carnage Collective running, and Spidey forced to choose between following them or rescuing a trapped Black Cat. I thought cats could get out of the way of stuff like that. Apparently not. Apparently not. Uh, page one's a brilliant splash page. Again, I've said before I was never that fond of Carnage as a character, and I've, I've never revisited any of his stories yeah. since originally reading them, um, because I find him incredibly one-note, but in a good writer's hand, his wit can be very black. DeFalco and Michelini can pull this off well, but it's in the visuals that Carnage really shines. He's a very, very fun character to look at and I imagine to draw, and Tom Lyle does a fantastic job with him this issue. Tom Lyle's a very underrated Spider-Man artist. Yeah. I think he... Because he was a really good Robin artist as well. And then he just kind of disappeared from comics. Yeah. So I don't know what happened. Though. Yeah, I was always terrified of Carnage. Well, yeah. Because that Spider-Man game. Which one was Carnage? The first one. Right. Because, like, Venom's terrified. Oh, yes. Of, you know, and then yes, Carnage yes. is in it, and then you have to fight Carnage. But then, right, Dr. Octopus comes in, and then Dr. Octopus turns into Carnage, and there's that ridiculously hard escape where you got to go through all the yeah. shafts escaping from him. And if you slip up at one he point, gets you. at all. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. I didn't know you were scared of him. Oh, yeah. It's, it's fair enough. And then, um, that kind of wasn't. Because I was like, uh To the carnage. Yeah. He's a nutter. Yeah. Um, page ben, two. Take him out. The Spider-Man clone smile is hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> He's just got this cheeky little grin. He looks genuinely happy. <laughs> he does, he looks genuinely happy to have a mummy and a daddy. Yeah. Which, oh, I got a mummy and a daddy. Yeah, the, the, the murderers. And I've got six arms and yeah. bug eyes and sharp teeth, but, you know. I got a mummy and daddy. <laughs> I've got something going for me. Um, page three. MJ and Peter apparently left Venom lying in the doorway all night. So that they could get dressed. Yeah, because this is the next morning. Yeah. So they just left Venom in the doorway. Yeah. <laughs> Did Liz Allen not walk past and go, never mind, well, I'm not going to ask. In, in all that time, Eddie Brock's grown a bad mullet. Yes, yeah, I, I've, Eddie Brock has got a terrible mullet. He didn't have it in the last issue. But He's he got a now. mullet like the kid in Terminator 2 that isn't John Connor. You know the one he's playing the games within the arcade when the, the T-1000 yeah. finds him yeah. he's got that kind of bad mullet 
Yeah, it, it's quite not quite terrible. Cliff Baker mullet. No, and um, Peter's a terrible husband again. <laughs> oh, Venom's more important than Mary Jane. Yeah, I, I don't think so. Um, page four's hysterical. Yeah. But for all the wrong reasons. Murray Jane has a conversation with Liz mm-hmm. in which Murray Jane says absolutely nothing. Yeah. So Liz is just having this conversation with Murray Jane without Murray Jane and even Mary Jane's participating. Ahead, yeah. yeah, it's brilliant. It's either Murray Jane's very self absorbed or a good listener, or, or Liz is going slightly mad. She seems like she's going slightly mad. Well, she has just lost her husband. Maybe all three would be on the list. Well, yeah, and she's got a whack job for her, for her husband. That kid for might be kid. trying to kill her every night. <laughs> Little Naomi Osborne's trying to stab her every day. Like, it, she's having a bath and she like falls asleep and then he creeps in with a toaster. Yeah. Then she wakes up and he hits it. Uh, Daenerys from um, Game of Thrones would love this page about joining the Hunt for Dragons. And then there's more pages about joining the and Hunt for Dragons. Lots more pages about joining the Hunt for Dragons. Um, Eddie Brock, we've already mentioned, has a simply magnificent, a bloody awful mullet. Because where did that come from? He didn't have that last issue, did he? It's, um, Extenders. It's, he's, had, he's, had extend, <laughs> he's had extensions put in his hair overnight. I know Peter did it as a practical <laughs> joke. <laughs> While he was passed out on the floor, <laughs> Peter got very gents put extensions in his hair. Eddie Brock doesn't know they're there. <laughs> <laughs> and then he went and got dressed and left him. Yeah, there. just left him. <laughs> when he looks in the mirror in the morning to do his teeth, he's going to go, Where'd this come from? That's like eating me a spider brains now. <laughs> oh, I love that idea. <laughs> That's better than the story. <laughs> Peter finds practical jokes more important than his wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a comedy beat played at the bottom of this page that isn't played particularly well in the artwork. Venom falls asleep saying, We'll find and stop Carnage. And Peter says, We? And it's obviously played for laughs, as the same routine is played out on page six between Peter and Felicia, yet in both cases, the art doesn't go for a comedy approach. Peter just looks baffled on page five. Yeah, and on page seven, he just looks angry. So, a bit of a mismatch there. Because it was... Did you get that that was played for a gag? Yes. What do you mean, we? Pale face? Speaking of Felicia, on page six, MJ has no problem whatsoever with Spider-Man just happily dropping by the bedroom of his ex-girlfriend when said ex-girlfriend is in bed not worrying very much. She is the most understanding wife in comics. Or she's like, well, Peter doesn't care. I don't care. I'm going to go out dancing and flirting. Yeah. Which is what she does. She's still worrying more than she was as the black cat. (laughs) Which strikes me as odd. She she worries more to go to bed than she does as the black cat at the moment. Which, you know, that's very strange. Um, the Black Cat's costume has been redesigned at this point. So that it has a V-shaped slit all the way down the front, all the way past and under her belly button. Mm-hmm. No, really. Not only is she in danger of spilling out every time she bends over, as we see on, on whatever page that is where she's bending over to put her boots on, but we can actually see if she's got a Brazilian. Well, you know, that's the... Designed for every female in every Metal Gear Solid game. Yeah. Mm. It may work as a distraction technique when you're fighting. It, I mean, if you're fighting a woman who looks like she's going to pop out of her top at any minute, <laughs> it would certainly give you pause, wouldn't it? And then she's got something else to aim at when you've seen her pop out. She's got a bigger target, if you know what I'm saying. 
I'm not really sick. Um, I just wish I didn't. Cloak, by contrast, appears to wear nothing under his cloak <laughs> when he's drawn by Mark Bagley. Mm. Where's his Where's his costume gone? Is this still Bagley? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, this is Tom Lyle. Sorry. Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So. I don't know why Tom Lyle seemed to be of the opinion that Cloak didn't wear anything under his cloak. Because that makes it a bit a bit gross when he opens his cloak and invites people in, doesn't it? Come in to me! <laughs> Which could mean something completely different now. Come into my big black hole! <laughs> as I bend over. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was that was a that was below the belt. <laughs> Quite literally. Um <laughs> There's a lovely comedy shot on page 16 as Michael recovers of Spidey swinging around town with a headset on. Fantastic yeah. background in that shot as well. I love the moon. Venom's still a bit out of proportion, I suppose, but yeah, it's, it's good. Um, page 18, Carnage Brains. Made me laugh. <laughs> Especially when he says, yum. Because of mini marbles. Because <laughs> of mini marbles, yeah. I want to eat your brain. <laughs> um, the last page is weird. Did you notice this when you read it? Venom can be quite clearly in the artwork seen to be swinging after the Carnage Collective. But the dialogue, which is lettered differently from the rest on the page, has him say that he's been weakened by the fire. There's then another speech balloon with different lettering where Spidey tells us that Venom has fallen unconscious back down into the warehouse. This leaves Spidey with the choice of stopping Carnage and his cronies on his own or going back to help an injured black but cat. But the art looks like he's just swinging off yeah. after Carnage. and he's nowhere near, near the, the warehouse at that point, is he? Yeah. If he fell down from there, he wouldn't fall anywhere near the warehouse. Hmm. Do you think this was a fabricated cliffhanger? Yeah. To make up for the fact that somewhere along the line, Tom Lyle's drawn it wrong. You don't even see Venom. No. You do, in the next chapter, he's trapped in the warehouse with Black Cat. Yeah. But he's clearly not at the end of this issue. Hmm. So somebody did a faux pas somewhere. Um, what struck me as really weird about these Maximum Carnage issues is there's been no subplots. Yeah. They've wrapped up Harry's death and there's the appearance of Peter's parents, but by and large this is a very linear story, reminiscent of the more modern right for the trade comics. So I suppose... Hey, let's go fight Carnage, oh, we lost him. Hey, yeah. let's go look for Carnage, let's fight Carnage, oh, we lost him. <laughs> pretty much it isn't it Black let's go night. fight Carnage and add another character yeah. oh we lost it yeah it is it's very similar to Blackest Night isn't it um, the bullpen bulletin page this month has a Mark's remark about um, awards in comics uh, and the Stanny Awards which I don't know if this became a regular thing at Marvel but the favourite regular series in these Stanny Awards in a poll of 200 staff employees were favourite regular series was the Incredible Hulk with Spider-Man 2099 and Excalibur tied. Favourite regular writer was Peter David. Favourite penciler was Alan Davis. Favourite inker was Mark Farmer. Favourite colourist was Steve Buccalato. Favourite letterer was Ken Lopez. Favourite limited series was Hulk Future Imperfect. Favourite crossover was The Executioner's Song. Favourite design packaging was The Extinction Agenda Trade Paperback. Favourite reprint package was Akira. Favourite revamp of a title character was Iron Man by writer Len Kaminsky. Which Luke Giaconetti mentioned in an email last week. Yeah. Favourite adaptation from another medium was Ren and Stimpy. Favourite character was the Hulk. Favourite cover enhancement was Hulk 393. Favourite editorial team was Joey Cavallari and Sarah Massoff. Favourite editorial team for covers was Bobby Chase, Matt Mora. Favourite cover was Barbie 25. 
That better be a damn good cover. It better be, yeah. Favourite logo was X-Men. Most improved title was Marvel Age. Favourite licence boot was Ren and Stimpy. Favourite letterer was Darren Ark. Favourite paste-up person was Steve Bunch. And favourite designer was Suzanne Gaffney. Favourite single issue was Future Imperfect number one or X-Factor 87. Okay. Both by Peter David. And there was an Infinity Gauntlet trade paperback release that month. No interesting adverts. No adverts for hot comic. It was all about dragons. Yeah. All about the dragons. So Daenerys would have liked that a great deal. The final issue we're going to cover this now. Oh, we've not said the Carnage Kill Count. Okay. No on-panel death this time. Mm-hmm. But Doppelgangland is seen carrying at least two bodies at the beginning of the issue. So we're going with two. So we're on 100 now. So we're on 101, aren't we? Oh, we? What were we on? Were we on 87? 97? Sure were, were we? Yeah. So we're on 100? Alright, we can always go back and tot it up. Yeah. At the end of the third part. Um, Spectacular Spider-Man 201 is like the rest, cover dated June 93, but came out on 27th of April 1993. The cover is by Sal Buscema and shows Carnage attacking the Black Cat as Spider-Man and Venom leap in for the attack. Yeah, it looks pretty good. Buscema has a good handle on Carnage, making him look sufficiently scurry, although the Black Cat looks a bit... Looks a bit Old. Wrong. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you'd look like that if Carnage was grabbing hold of you like that. What, the cover, you'd age quickly. You'd, you'd age quickly. <laughs> uh, there's more than one way to kill a cat, says the cover copy. Uh, it's entitled Over the Line and was written by GM De Mateus with art by Sal Buscema, letters by Joe Rosen, colours by Bob Sharon, Rob Tokar edited, Bonnie Finger off and Tom DeFalco handled the other editing chores. <gasps> These credits are far too long. Yeah. Spidey gets the cat out of the warehouse and Venom stumbles out under his own power. Did he get the cat out of the bag? He got the cat out of the bag. Bum, bum. Um, which is very good of him, seeing as he wasn't in the warehouse at the end of last issue. Just as the warehouse collapses, both Venom and the cat berate Spidey for not following Carnage and they leave together. After Spidey says he wants no part in how Venom operates, instead, he heads to Aunt May's for milk and cookies instead of, you know, stopping the bloodthirsty whack jobs. Whilst he's being told that people are basically cut good by Aunt May and then being told that people are all actually scum if you scratch off the veneer of civilization by his dad, the Carnage Collective are in central New York killing people. Way to go, Peter. Black Cat and Venom also arrive too late to stop the Fifth Avenue murderers and regroup with Cloak. Meanwhile, Carnage and his mad clan have gone for a bite to eat that has turned into another slaughter fest. They leave for more mayhem and are pursued by carrion because what this story needs is more characters. Spider-Man follows the trail later and finds regular people all tearing each other apart, all inspired by Carnage to rip the city apart. And he vows that from this moment forth, there will be no mercy from Spider-Man. Page one. Black Cat seems to be wearing a completely different mask. So not only is the Venom continuity a bit off, yeah. Black Cat's buggered off home, changed the mask and come back, obviously afraid that people would recognise her, despite the fact that wearing that costume, no one's looking at your face, love. Yeah. Um, there's an excellent nine-panel grid on page one of the flames dancing around so like they're alive. Page one. Yeah, I went back a bit. It's the, Well, the mask's on page one, though. Yeah. Um... Where was I? Oh, yeah. Everyone looked panicked and sweaty. You interrupted me, Flo, though. Thanks, uh, This is a huge contradiction on last issue. Venom, despite the added dialogue and hastily patched in speech balloons, had clearly made it far away from the warehouse. And Cat was trapped with only her arm visible. Here, Venom's in the warehouse and Cat is stuck behind a single piece of masonry. The black cat's very John Romita, isn't she? Mm. I thought that was very Romita-esque. Uh, the two-page splash on pages two and two and three is pretty good 
Page four, Venom stumbles out of the warehouse concerned for the death of innocence. The same man who killed a cop who looked about 20 in his first appearance is concerned about the death of innocence. Hmm. Hypocritical much? Anti-hero. By which you mean not a hero at all, in which I can get behind that totally. Okay. Uh, what's even more amusing, on page 16, in a fit of peak, Venom throws a car through the air. Yeah. What Mr. Protect the Innocents didn't know is that car landed on a family of five out for a walk on a balmy evening, crushing them all, and the three, three of the children were all newborn baby triplets. Well done, Mr. Protector of the Innocents. Page 16, because I didn't have a lot to say about this issue, you may have noticed. Why does Black Cat say Cloak has been up for two days when Dagger was killed just last night? Has there been any time? Yes, this is the next evening. So there's been one night, but there's not been two days. Yeah. So we're into the second day of this story taking place. Carnage got loose from Ravenscroft yesterday. He murdered all evening. They had the first confrontation. They've gone now into the next day. Because Venom collapsed at their house. So we're into two days. Um, Two days and a hundred people. Yeah. It's quite a a record, that. Um, Arguably... Jame DiMatteis is the best writer of the bunch in this crossover. Yet this issue makes no sense, which is why I don't have much in the way of notes about it. So the Black Cat would rather team up with a psychopath to hunt down a worse psychopath, even though Venom has accomplished absolutely nothing so far apart from posturing and posing and spouting stupid dialogue. Of course, his competition in the doing bugger all stakes is rivaled by the hero of the book, who goes and visits his aunt instead of trying to track Carnage down. What bollocks is this? We get more of Aunt May's down-home wisdom that we've seen tons of times before, and then quite possibly the worst piece of setup I've ever read in a comic when for no reason that makes sense whatsoever, even within the confines of this admittedly limited storyline. Richard Parker turns into a prophet of doom, telling Peter all about the worst of human nature when, Kel surprise, at the end of the boot, regular people have turned into a bloodthirsty mob for no reason other than they've seen carnage. And where are the police? Or the Avengers, or the FF, well, or the you, Punisher. You would have thought that 100 people in three days would be enough to alert some attention. Yeah. With S.H.I.E.L.D. or yeah. SWAT. Yeah, you'd have thought this would have got on somebody's radar, but yeah. apparently not. Despite the proliferation of hot 90s-era sales boosters, there haven't even been lip service made to were the people who could actually stop Carnage are. Very disappointing. In a future issue... Yeah. They will go and hunt out Firestar. Yeah. When somebody says, why can't we get the Human Torch? And he says something like, the FF aren't around. So we do get... Something like this would happen, like, Reed Richards would come out with his sonic gun and just go, this again? But they go and get his sonic gun later on. Yeah. But to use on Carnage. Mm. So, again, they they are thinking this through, but it's just simply too many issues that they have to pad it through, isn't it? Yeah. Um... It's hard to come up with a carnage kill count for this issue. We see at least ten dead bodies on page 13, four more on page 14, and four more on page 16, although we can't be sure of these as some of the same bodies. There is one more on page 17. However, the Fifth Avenue assault goes on for much longer than we see, you know, while Spider-Man is having cookies and milk with dear old Aunt May, and Demogoblin destroys an NYPD helicopter on page 14, and Carnage says that they've slaughtered the entire diner on page 17. Conservatively, I'd estimate a kill count of at least 20, if we assume there was at least one pilot in the helicopter. 
if there was other people in the helicopter then it could be bigger um there's not many cool adverts in this issue either there's one that practically screams the 90s yeah the secret defenders have been assembled by Doctor Strange so let's check off the 90s isms okay should we Wolverine and Ghost Rider yep big guns (coughs) yep pouches yep shoulder pads yep armour yep some stubble yep a trench coat yep and a character with a ponytail yep cuddly tie Oh, no, no, cuddly tie. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, whatever. Like we said, we'd hope to do this in two issue episodes, issue sodes. Issue sodes. <laughs> two true freaks call them issue sodes. Because they keep doing that. They keep saying episode issues and messing it up. Yeah. But we didn't have time. We ran out of time. So it's going to be a three-parter. So next week, chapters six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. Yep. Of Maximum Carnage. Let us know if you agree with what we've said about this storyline. Someone sends in and says it's the pinnacle of It's the pinnacle of, of Marvel 90s output. Yeah. I'd be willing to listen to that opinion. If you don't agree with it. I don't have to agree with it to listen to it. Yeah. Thank you everyone who emailed in. Thank you everyone who continues to listen. We appreciate your patronage. And we'll be back next more with more... Ma- for God's sake. Next more. Next more. We'll be back next week with more mindless bloodshed. And that's just when Michael says Eric Banner is the best Bruce Banner. Eric I didn't I didn't say he was the best, I said he's better than Mark Ruffin. See you next week everybody. Bye bye. Goodbye. of the show can now be found on the Two True Freaks internet radio network at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com So if you're one of those people who'd be wanting to know where all our old shows are that's where you'll find them. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money from this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday, currently at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the surname. 
You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics that we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. If you have an opinion our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks.com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. We're tied to the night. We're tied to the night.